The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, we're continuing our study in Mark, and today we're looking at Jesus' arrest. And I think this is a, there's some really good life principles for us to think about. When you feel threatened, when you sense you're losing power, certainly the disciples are experiencing in this passage here, you have this great conflict coming together of a crowd and all these people come to arrest Jesus. And you are seeing the clash of light or darkness coming into conflict with the light and good versus evil. And what we see in this text, and you can look for this as I read it, is you're going to see three wrong ways to deal with evil. You're going to see Judas's response to evil. He conforms to it. He becomes part of it. Then you have Peter's response, which is to fight it and pull out your sword and strike somebody's, try to kill somebody. And then you have, which we're going to discover is John Mark himself, fleeing and leaving and getting out of there. And, and then we see there's only one proper response, and that's Jesus, who shows us the perfect way. But let's give attention here to God's Word. Mark 14, I'm reading 43 to 52. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who, drew, who stood by drew his sword struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Okay, so we're going to look at uh, these four, well, three pictures before us. Think of like three vignettes or three scenes, and you have the crowd and the kiss, you have the sword and the strike, and you have the fleeing and the leaving. And we'll kind of look at each, each of those and see what they have for us, as each of those is obviously not what we're, we're to be about as the people of God. And so let's consider first the crowd and the kiss. And Mark describes this arrest squad uh, coming for, for Jesus in uh, verse 43. We could call them the posse. And the posse are the chief priests, sent from the chief, chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. They're authorized by the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the, the Jews' Supreme Court. But 
we, when we look at the clues, we also see that the Romans were also a part of the posse to get Jesus, as the Jewish temple police only had clubs. They didn't carry swords. They had their billy clubs, and they did their business with bringing their force with the clubs, whereas the Roman soldiers, they had something a little, little more lethal than that. They had swords. And it says they came with clubs and swords. So we know that this is Roman soldiers plus Jewish police. And Jesus' arrest is in all four Gospels. And we see from the other accounts and that one of the accounts says that there was a cohort of soldiers, which is a Roman term, and a cohort is 600 soldiers. So if there was a full cohort, they would have had quite a, quite a posse here coming for Jesus. And Judas has already previously agreed to give Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. And similar to Judah, one of the brothers of Joseph, and interestingly, the word Judah and Judas in Greek are the same. So if you're reading in the Septuagint, you'd, you would look at Judah and you'd see the same word. So here you have the same, you know, Judah of old sells off his own brother for 20 shekels of silver as a slave to these Midianite traders heading down to Egypt. And Jesus now is being uh, given over uh, for 30 pieces of silver. And I remember when I first became a Christian, this is a long time ago, I started counting, it's 35 years ago, and Michael Card was big, a Christian musician, and he had this, this album called Known by the Scars, and I just wore that tape out in my car. And one of the songs was called Why, and this is how the lyrics began. He said, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord, and why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain, and only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. You see, the lyrics capture this whole scene that doesn't make sense. It's disorienting. We see from this life lesson that the same fire that melts wax hardens clay, and that Judas was right among them, and he was such a hypocrite, meaning he played the part so well, he played it so well that none of the 12 thought it was him. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, what do they begin to say? they begin to ask themselves, is it I? They no more thought it was Judas than they thought it was themselves. It wasn't like there was this suspicion about Judas. They didn't know. And to come with a kiss, as Sproul, R.C. Sproul said, the kiss was an act of hip hypocrisy with a vengeance. And it reminds us of Joab. And Joab was one of David's generals, and he didn't like anything coming against his power. And we're told in 2 Samuel 20, verse 9 and 10, that Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. That's what we call the kiss of death. And what Judas did here is a kiss of death. And when impostors wormed their way into underground churches, 
And you hear of this happening today where churches have to meet underground because of hostility from authorities. But sometimes authorities will worm their way into these groups and pretend to be a Christian, pretend to be one of them. And then they turn them into the government. And then these leaders go to prison. You see, there's this terrible story of William Tyndale. And Tyndale, who we have so much to thank for, it's like 70% of his Bible. He was used the original manuscripts. He was great in Hebrew and Greek. This is during the Reformation, early 1500s, I think 1536 when he died. He translated, and it's like over 75 70% of his translations used in the King James Bible. And we have William Tyndale to thank. But Tyndale had to, had to go on the run because of his Protestant, his, his beliefs that weren't in vogue with the Catholic Church. And this guy, Henry Phillips, was the worm that needed money. And so he goes and he worms his way into William Tyndale's life and dines with him, and Tyndale shows him all that he's doing, and, and they even went on tour of the city together, and this guy's scooping out where he's going to lead him into the authorities, and right down this little pathway, and, and sure enough, he gets him to go to lunch with him, and then he's behind him with the sign and pointing, this is him, this is him, and they, they get a hold of William Tyndale, and then they strangled him, and then they burned him as a heretic. And that was the end of Tyndale. So these kind of things, they still happen is the point. But this is not the way of the Lord, obviously. So let us learn from our own midst. I think, you know, for us, the lesson would be, are you playing a game with people? Are you here, but you're using the church for selfish purposes? Are you a Judas in disguise? Well, if you are, you need to repent. Because God isn't fooled. And we're to submit to the Lord, and if you're pretending to submit and you're not, you're not fooling God. So after the crowd and the kiss, then we see the sword and the strike. Mark's account tell us, tells us and doesn't give us quite the vivid details that John's gospel does. That's why we had the reading from John's gospel, and we discover who this was that took out the sword. It was Simon Peter himself. Maybe a little safer now since John wrote so much later to actually write down whose name it was that did that, you know? Maybe the other early gospel writers didn't want to actually say Simon Peter, but he's the one who cuts off the right ear of Malchus, we're told in John 18.10. And interestingly, this, this Greek word for sword is a little different probably than you have in your mind of this big, long sword, you know, something like from Lord of the Rings or something. This word for sword would have been a sharp two-edged two -edged dagger that was small and easily hidden, and it was used to lunge, and it was very lethal. And so it is surmised that Peter lunged at Malchus with his sword, but that Malchus moved out of the way at the last second, and he severed clean off the lower lobe of his ear and took it off. Now, there's different theories, but that's... That's the theory I'm going with. Now, what's the lesson here for us? We see that Judas handled evil by using evil for his own greedy purposes, playing the part of betrayal for money. In the second, Peter, in the second picture, we have Peter, and his way of dealing with evil is to fight evil with evil. And he intends to kill Malchus with an attempted murder. 
Warren Wearsby, commentator, pastor, says, Christ does not need our protection. The weapons we are to use to fight Satan are spiritual ones, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 6, and Ephesians 6. Peter used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, he, he, against the, under the wrong orders, and he accomplished the wrong result. If Peter had been watching and praying as Jesus had told him three times to pray with me, his spirit would have been in tune. But as a result, his heart was out of tune. And the church is singing way out of tune in this song, in this text. Peter thinks he's taken up the sword for Jesus because this is the way to bring about Jesus' kingdom. He's still thinking the kingdom must be, is being threatened. It's being violated. It must, it must come by might makes right and it must come by force and we must make it happen. We need to, we need to make Israel great again. We need to bring it about by force. And J.C. Ryle just says about this pastor from last century, actually 1800s, said the sword has a lawful office of its own. It may be used righteously in the defense of nations against oppression. It may become positively necessary to use it to prevent confusion, plunder upon the earth. And his point is that the, the church has not been given the power of the sword, but the state has, Romans 13. And so when you are reading writers that today that, that don't give any recognition that the sword has been given to the state, and the state does have authority that the church doesn't have. But he's saying the sword is not to be used in the propagation and maintenance of the gospel. Christianity is not to be enforced by bloodshed and belief in, in exhorted, extorted by force. He said, happy would it be for the church if this sentence had been more frequently remembered. There are a few centuries in Christendom where the mistake has not been made of attempting to change men's religious op opinions by compulsion, penalties, imprisonment, and death. And with what effect? The pages of history supply an answer. No wars have been so bloody as those that have arisen out of the collision of religious opinions. Often, mournfully often, the very men who've been most forward to promote those wars have themselves been slain. May we never forget this. The weapons of the Christian warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. We sing one of these hymns in our church, Lead on, O King Eternal. And lead, in the second verse says, not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. That's a good for us to remember. And I would say for us, we might not be tempted to kill people with swords or, or guns or, or drums, but what about our thumbs? I wonder sometimes if we're killing people in our hearts. I was struck by reading uh, James Davidson Hunter's, uh, he wrote this book in 2010, and it's amazing how relevant this book is. And he's very good with uh, how, he's very good at insightful into culture, but this book is called To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. And he's sounding the alarm about the relationship of the church and the Christian faith in relation to politics in America. And stick with me for a minute, because he lines up like four arguments, and here they are. Number one, he starts with an overarching claim that everything has become political. Everything. Everything's politically contested, whether it's the family, 
reproduction, sex, morality, marriage, everything has become political. But then he says, sadly then, faith has become political. With those on the right and those on the left trying to wrest Jesus from the other side. I want Jesus on my team. I will get him on my side. And so Jesus is being used by both sides to serve their kingdom purposes. But Jesus is just a means to an end. He then argues that modern Christians increasingly define who they are and what they believe through political power struggles. He says, you know, basically what he's getting at is our identity becomes not who we are in Jesus, but who we are politically speaking. And he says the tragic consequence of this is the state is becoming the final authority, the means by which we relate to one another. And in light of this, he just says it's creating this clash, that the left and right are engaged in this power, struggle, and conflict. And then he says this political identity of which we're starting to become the churches, people in the churches are starting to identify with this. And I mean, Paul used to warn against, you know, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And he warned strongly against that in the church. I mean, he didn't even, he didn't have to even begin to think in his mind that some would say, you know, I follow Caesar and I follow this political guy. I mean, that was the furthest thing from their mind. He had to warn, he had to warn against leaders in the church. But today we got to warn against, you know, I'm of this party, I'm of that party. And so he's saying political identity becomes so tightly linked with ideology that partisan commitment becomes the measure of our moral significance and whether we're really good or whether we're bad. And then his next point is the most key of all. He said these ideological positions of which our identity is getting tied to is leading to resentment. And that's the Nietzsche term. And he redefines it, resentment, as a narrative of injury. And this is key. It's amazing. He wrote this in 2010, so just listen. He said, resentment has come to define American political discourse. That is, those on the right feel injured and harmed by Obama. And the left feels injured and harmed by George W. Bush. In light of this injury, feelings of anger, resentment, and and even hatred begin to boil up. Resentment. He says the sense of injury is the key. Over time, the perceived injustice becomes central to the person and the group's identity. Understanding themselves to be victimized is not a passive acknowledgement, but a belief to be cultivated. So he's saying accounts of atrocity become a crucial subplot of the narrative, evidence that reinforces the sense that they have been or will be wronged or victimized. Cultivating the fear of further injury becomes the strategy for generating solidarity within the group and mobilizing your group to action. You're being victimized. You're being taken advantage of. And he says it's often useful at such times to exaggerate or magnify the threat. And then he says, in light of that, these wrongs have to be righted. The injury, real or perceived, leads to the aggrieved to accuse and blame and vilify and then seek revenge on those who are responsible. The adversary has to be shown for who they are, exposed for their corruption, and put in their place. Do you see what's happening? Christians then are falling into this, in this culture that privileges injury, 
valorizes speech acts as negation and legitimizes the will to power. And he concludes by saying it's creating a dense fog through which it's difficult to recognize each other as fellow human beings. Do you see? It doesn't take much for you to just get shifted in the slightest direction off like Peter is. And you think, I'm a victim. I'm being threatened. Our power's being taken away. We've got to fight for it. The Crusades were not, they didn't begin in 1095 as we're going to go and and convert uh, Muslims by the sword. That's a wrong story, if you hear that. The right story, or the truer story, is that Pope Urban in 1095 was saying, Jerusalem has been taken over your land. Your people have been taken over by the Turks, by the Muslims, and we must reclaim the land. We've got to make Jerusalem great again. And he promised them absolution of, or forgiveness of sins, basically no purgatory, and that if they died, they died in the name of Christ. This would be a great martyr death to go in the name of, of Jesus. And the Crusades began with this subtle shift in the wrong direction, wrong identity, wrong focus. The church is not to take up the sword. Peter is to put away your sword, put it back in the sheath. And we live in a culture that just feeds on this. We're in a culture where the tough guy, the guy who's sick and tired of being pushed around, he's sick of the injustice. It's time to make things right. I mean, I Googled this week just revenge movies because it's a whole genre, right? And I knew that I was onto something when you start seeing that the sequels are just as popular or more popular than the original because the people want more of it. And it starts innocent, something like The Princess Bride. We all love The Princess Bride, but what's the theme through the whole movie? You killed my father, prepare to die, and I'm watching it with my kids when they're really young and we're loving this movie, and then you SOB and boom, he stabs him right to death right in front of my kids. It's a revenge movie from beginning to end, but we call it a great movie. Diango Unchained, V for Vendetta, Unforgiven. And then you have these like John Wick. I mean, they killed his dog. They messed up his car. I never saw it, but you got John Wick. Well, that's not enough. We got to have chapter two, John Wick chapter two, John Wick chapter three, and John Wick chapter four. They got my dog. I'm going to get them all. You got Equalizer, you got Equalizer 2, Equalizer 3, you don't have Kill Bill, I guess he's still alive because you got Kill Bill 2, you have Liam Neeson's Taken and Taken 2, Taken 3, I mean, is he, he's taken, he's coming to get you. And then apparently there's this movie called I Spit on Your Grave, I Spit on Your Grave 2, and I Spit on Your Grave, Vengeance is Mine, taking a quote, direct quote of God, used four times in scripture, claiming it, that that's their job. Woo! And then, of course, the biggest sequel of all is Rambo. You've got First Blood. They took First Blood. Then you have Rambo. Then you have First Blood 2, Rambo 3, and you probably didn't even know about this, Rambo Last Blood. I mean, there's five of them. I mean, revenge movies, why are they so popular? 
we love it when the bad guys get it. And it bleeds into the church. And we start thinking, we need to take it to the other side. Is that what Jesus is doing here? He tells Peter, put away your sword. To those arresting them, have you come against a robber? That's not really a good translation. Have you come against me literally as an insurrectionist? Like, do you think I'm like Barabbas? Do you think I'm a rebel? Do you think I'm a thug? Do you think I'm a revolutionary? Do you think I'm a guerrilla leading a terrorist organization? Seeing you've come with all these soldiers and police and swords and clubs, you don't have a clue what I'm about or what revolution I'm really bringing. Because it's for the weak, it's for the poor, it's for the marginalized, it's for the, the downtrodden. It's turning, I mean, these people are turning the world upside down is what they say in Acts. Because he's turning the world right side up. In a world that was loaded with oppression, it was geared towards oppression, geared towards discrimination. It fed on, the, on class division and, and Jesus just breaks through all of that. And he does it by going to a cross. And in Luke, he's our doctor. In Luke's account, he's the only gospel writer that records Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Why is that significant? It's the only miracle of the Passion Week until you get to the resurrection. Jesus comes, he resolutely, resolutely sets his face to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer. He's going to be mocked, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be punched, spit on. He could have worked miracles at any time. Does he do it? Because he's going there for us. He's showing us. He's, but he's not just our example. He's, first of all, our substitute in our place for all of our revenge. And he goes to the cross, but the only miracle he does during the Passion Week is one who's been hurt by violence. He heals him. No more. Andrew Whitehead, in his recent book entitled American Idolatry, which he's tackling the issue of Christian nationalism, he has a pithy quote that's worth remembering. He says, when Jesus came to make disciples and save humanity, the only blood he shed was his own. Christianity does not grow by the sword. That's not our religion. We don't do that. We die to self. We follow the Lord. And so, put away the sword. Then we see the fleeing and the leaving. And this last encounter, one is trying to, to fight. I'm going to fight this. Fight it in the wrong way. But then the other is to, to flee. I'm just, I'm out of there. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough run away is, is, is the, the idea here. And most people think that this is kind of like a, an Alfred Hitchcock kind of moment that, you know, he, he appears in every one of his moments uh, or in every one of his movies. There's a little cameo of, of Hitchcock somewhere. Here's Mark intruding himself into the text and showing us, yeah, that was, that was me. And why is he fleeing? Well, most people think that what happened was is that he went out hastily and he only had a, a linen garment on. But with the linen garment, when the authorities grabbed him, he could do the quick Barry Sanders move, 
Christian McCaffrey move, do the spin move, and the, and the linen just gets ripped right off, and off you go. And off he runs. But it leaves us with a picture, does it not? Now here's the picture. We're in a garden, and we have somebody fleeing naked. Does that remind you of any other story of the Bible? Of garden, naked, fleeing. That's where we started. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when God comes, we're ashamed. And now we realize we're naked and we, we flee in our shame away from God. And then there's a, there's a sword that the angel of the Lord, basically God has realized, I can't let them back into the garden. I needed the tree of life in a sinful state. I must fix the problem. And so he puts the sword the angels have this flaming sword. You can't come back to the garden. And there's a sword there. But this text shows us that somebody's going to take the sword for us. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And he's going to take the sword, take the punishment, so that we can get back to the garden. And then you have this interesting, depending on how you, you read the text, but, you know, this little inclusio here of young man, linen cloth. The only other place you have that is in Mark 16, where you have this young man that's an angel telling you, see his linen cloth? See him there? He's, he's been raised from the dead. He's left the tomb. It's done. He's taken care of it. He is forgiven. Your sins go before him. He's going to meet you in Galilee. And so our God, Jesus, has taken the sword of divine justice in our place. He's going there for a reason. And though this Mark's text and the other gospel writers seem to indicate that they're holding up this idea that the disciples fled because they're afraid, okay? But John's account, if you read that when we, we read it this morning, John takes a different twist on that. And his, his take on that is that Jesus says, let them go, so that it would be said, of all the ones you've given me, I haven't lost any. And the idea that most scholars think is that Jesus knew at that time that the disciples' faith was not strong enough, and that if the Roman authorities would have taken them, that they would have fallen away. But Jesus, knowing whose are who's his, he says, let them go. I'm going to die for them. And when I'm raised, then he knows they're going to have the power to live this Christian life. But they didn't have it at the time. Well, brothers and sisters, it's finished. Jesus has done this for us. And so we come now to the table not to be forgiven of sins because they've already been forgiven. We come to remember what he's done, and he's welcomed us into his presence. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we see your courage, we see your heart, your love for us, your willingness to go. We know you're all powerful, just you say in your, your name that I am he. They all drew back and fell to the ground. You willingly went. We thank you. Thank you that you also took up your life again. You are all powerful. And we're grateful for forgiveness of sins and new life in Jesus. Meet us now at your table. 
We ask in your name. Amen.